Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. Baby, you sound sick. Oh gosh. I Are think, you sickly? I think it's just sinus stuff. Yeah, you woke up and you've got a little bit of something happening. Yeah, I know. I'm going to blame it on the weather. I'm going to blame it on the rain. North Carolina's weather pattern is off <laughs> the chain. I don't know what's going on. Mother Nature, you're drunk. Go home. It'll be 65, 70 degrees one day. The next day it's snowing. Then we'll have like four days of monsoon weather where it's just nothing but rain and flooding. And then it'll be back to like a nice spring day and then more snow. I don't know what's happening. What the hell? You know, the, the other day my phone said it will be 35 degrees colder tomorrow. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> what the hell's going on? Yeah, so I think the weather probably has you maybe a little messed up. Yeah, I know. I told you I was going to sound a little stupid. No, you sound fine. Okay. Our listeners are very forgiving. Oh, and I love them. They understand. You're real people. You get sick here and there. I'm not I'm not some big personality that never gets sick. So, Mount Murders, we like to have the show, well, I, I like to say it's a mullet. We have business in the front, party in the back. Yeah, that's right. So, let's take care of some business right now. Okay. Special offer via Patreon. If you sign up at $5 or higher this month in February, we'll send you a specialized custom video message from us. Oh, wow. Yeah. I might sign up. You'll also access more content. I mean, we're working right now to improve quality, quantity on Patreon, and funds we earn on Patreon directly support the show and help us grow Mountain Murders Podcast. You can sign up for as low as $1 a month, or if you want to, you can make a one-time donation via PayPal. Wow. So if you're like, hey, I love your podcast, here's 10 bucks, we'll put that uh, toward a, a really good common goal of, of making Mountain Murders better. Keep it going. Also, we have passed, I mean, just blown by 50,000 downloads. Yeah, I'm just said that blows me away. We're almost at like 55,000. Yeah, I know. Which is a huge milestone for us. I think so, considering we thought five people might listen when we first started. Well, we're independent. We don't have a big podcast company backing us, marketing the show. I mean, this is all like a grassroots, literally do-it-yourself kind of podcast. So the fact that we even have 55,000 downloads is incredible. Yeah, I think it amazes me every day. Talk about a self-esteem booster. Yeah, I know. I feel so validated in what I do. How about yeah, you? <laughs> when people say, oh, I love your podcast. You're my go-to. Listen to you every day. Going to work. Things like that. It just every single time I read something like that blows me away. Yeah, it makes me feel really good. Also, I think we should have maybe a Patreon episode or maybe we'll make it a, a regular show where we read some of our bad reviews. <laughs> we don't have a whole lot of them, but they're pretty funny. Yeah, we got some good ones. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for uh, taking the time to give us a shitty review. We get a lot of entertainment. We get a lot of mileage out of those. True. Another live show is coming up in May. Which is really not that far away, Dylan. Oh my Just gosh. a couple of months at Fleetwoods in Asheville. They've invited us to come back. They really had a great time, our first show. So they want us to come back in May, do another show. Also, they're expanding the venue a bit. They're going to have more seating, which means more tickets. Yeah, and the more chances to see and meet Mount Murder's family. If you want to buy tickets, they're on sale through brownpapertickets.com. And, of course, you can find our event on Facebook if you go to the Mountain Murders page. One of my goals for 2020 is to offer, like, a mini tour. And, again, we were talking about um, growing the podcast and how 
those donations on Patreon really help support us. And this is one way you can do that because I want to offer like a bit of a mini tour. So I'm going to be working to book a few more live shows this year. And if you want mountain murders in your town, drop us a line and let us know. Oh, I'd love to travel around and meet some people. Let's give some shout outs to our new patrons. Thank you, Jennifer, Holly, Patty, Deidre, Sherry, and Cody. Yeah, it's great, right? Thanks, guys. Sherry lives right here in our hometown. Wow. Yeah, and Cody is up in Avery County, North Carolina. Oh, I love it up there. And they, from what I understand, have had a lot of snow. Oh, yeah, they, yeah they're they a little Where we've north. had basically like a dusting or an inch. I've had people in Avery County reach out and say, girl, we've had like 19 inches up here. <laughs> yeah, they're on the line where we get the crappy monsoons and they get actual snow. Yeah, it is a beautiful area. We should go up there someday. I love it. A little road trip. It's so pretty there up in the, the northern part of the mountains. We still have a few of those Mountain Murders t-shirts left, mostly larges and extra larges. We had a great listener, Stephanie. She's all the way up in Massachusetts who bought one via Instagram. I can't wait to see her selfie in a Mountain Murders t-shirt. Oh, wow. Repping the Mountain Murders all the way up north in Massachusetts. Are you ready for today's case, Dylan? I am. It sounds very interesting. Speaking of all the way up north in Massachusetts, we're, we're going to be talking about the New England area today. And of course, Mountain Murders podcast. We're an Appalachian true crime podcast. But hey, Appalachia is not limited to our area here in Western North Carolina. It spans thousand miles more, you know? I mean, there's a lot of area. Yeah, it goes all the way up the East Coast. It sure does. So today's story is actually going to take place in New England, in the Appalachian area up there. We've been wanting to travel up there. <laughs> we have been. <laughs> Are you ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. This is a great old case. As you say, we're going to get in our... Oh, our uh, limited edition Mountain Murders Way Back Machine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's sort of like Scooby-Doo's Mystery Machine. Yeah. Only I like to imagine the Way Back Machine is like a really cool, like, 67 Cadillac, like, Fleetwood hearse. Yeah. That's wrapped in, like, a Mountain Murders design and has some of those, like, fuzzy balls, like, uh, you know, hanging from the interior, leopard print seats, that kind of thing. Oh, we need one of those. Some fuzzy dice. And then we could get like a serial Some naked killer, lady mud flaps. Serial killer bobbleheads all the way across See? the dash. Are you, are you having a great visual of what it's like to be in the way, way back machine? Yes. Okay, it's pretty funky. So everybody strap your seatbelts. Let's go back in time. Or if you're in the back, just lay down flat. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth Margaret McNally was born in Ireland in 1864 in the county Antrim. Reports speculate she was somewhere between three and eight years old when she immigrated to the United States with her parents. The Irish family settled in the Big Apple, New York City, as many immigrants did at that time. New York City was a huge melting pot. Still is. Yeah, but that was the ground zero for all immigration into the country for the most part. Ellis right? Island? Right. Yeah. Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island. I mean, millions of people passed through the halls of Ellis Island. Well, maybe some of your ancestors did. I'm sure. Between 1820 and 1860, the Irish were over one-third of all the immigrants to the United States. Estimated four and a half million Irish entered the U.S. between 1820 and 1930. That's a lot of Irish. It is. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a history lesson here. The Irish potato famine blight had begun to recede by about 1850, but the country was still ravaged with poverty, disease, starvation. 
In New York City, the McNallys, like other immigrant families, faced difficult conditions, such as unsanitary living spaces, just in general, communities weren't very clean, they didn't have plumbing, water, trash pickup. Well, yeah, you're already getting all these people crammed in a very small area with uh, no, no infrastructure like they have nowadays. So everything's wood. None of those public services, the public muddy, works. Yeah, the muddy streets. Exactly. The Horses. Refuge. Just shitting all along the streets. Oh, my God. I so, just imagine, you know the Seinfeld episode where Kramer gets the horse and carriage and he's feeding the horse beefarino? Yeah. And then the horse is just like farting on the people in the carriage? That's what I imagine. Sorry. Poor thing. I'm sorry. So that's what I imagine is happening in these New York streets. So and uh, this still people have chamber pots. Yes. So people are throwing it. They're throwing it out the fucking door and window. Yeah, throwing their trash out the window. Oh my god! Even then, why did that seem like a good idea? Wouldn't you have like a spot to empty your pot? You'd think. Disease was spreading, as you can imagine. Oh, things like cholera and dysteria. Is that one of Flus, them? viruses, just all kinds of nasty stuff. Ugh. Social problems like violence, alcoholism, and of course, discrimination were huge. The Irish immigration was the 19th century refugee crisis. They threatened to take jobs away from Americans and were seen as a strain on welfare budgets. They were accused of being criminals and rapists. Sounds a lot like the political rhetoric we hear today. Yeah, it's funny how they keep rolling out the same game plan on things like this. Yeah, just targeting different groups of people. Yeah. The Irish were viewed not only as poor, but unskilled refugees, and even worse, they were Catholic. Protestants and Catholics were already at each other's throats before that potato famine had wilted the crop in Ireland. In cities like Philadelphia, anti-Catholic and anti-Irish mobs burned churches destroyed houses, many of those like tenement-style houses where these immigrants were living. You can read up on the deadly Bible riots of 1844 to get an idea of the political and religious climate that was happening at that time. Though the number of German immigrants matched the same, you know, the Irish basically, the Protestants had created a propaganda campaign against the Irish Catholics. People of the older generation could remember a time when America was still an English colony and that papal effigies were like burned in the streets during Guy Fawkes types of celebrations. Remember the 5th of November? Oh, what happened on the 5th of November? (laughs) Do I have to give you more history lessons? Oh, wait, is this V for Vendetta? (laughs) No, we're talking about Guy Fawkes. Well, yeah, he was in that. Yeah. His image. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, let's just get back to it. (laughs) Okay. So enough of our mini history lesson. I just wanted our audience to see the political climate of the time and that living in New York City was not sheltered at all from this treatment. No, so you had all these... If anything, it puts you right in the middle of the shitstorm. Yeah, and you have all these different tensions. All these, uh, I mean, it's like you said, it's the same game plan. It's being done today in various countries around the world. But uh, you have all this propaganda all this uh, inflammatory rhetoric, and that just really creates a um, dangerous situation. From 1834 to 1844, so in 10 years, there were 200 major gang wars that broke out in New York City alone. Wow. Yes. You've seen the film Gangs of New York, you know, the Martin Scorsese film? 
it's a fairly good depiction of what life was like in New York City during this time period. Oh, man, I love that movie. I was reading an article where there was a history professor from George Washington University who said that it could not have been any more realistic, that it just was really spot on in capturing that time. Yeah, when these guys met up and, and had a fight, it wasn't throwing some hands and them drinking a little bit of liquor after they had weapons. and I mean, this seemed pretty damn rough. Like an all-out war. Melee weapons and all this crazy shit. Well, that movie takes place in 1863, which is only a few years before Lizzie's family came to America. Wow. Life for the McNallys was not easy. I mean, it was pretty rough for most Irish immigrants. Perhaps the environment in which Lizzie had grown up shaped the person she would become. I mean, what is it, nature versus nurture? Lizzie was described as a criminal prodigy. Now, she had violent tendencies, earning a reputation in the streets for being particularly brutal. At home, conflicts often ended in violence. She would often get into fist fights with her mother, her sister, father. Eventually, Lizzie had to leave home after a particularly bad physical altercation with her family. But when her father died, Lizzie's grief was overwhelming. She dramatically threw her body on top of his grave and was clawing at the dirt. Oh. She's one of those people who seems to have extreme emotions. Right. It's extreme anger, extreme lashing out, but she's also extremely passionate. Well, and uh, a personality like that could really get you in some trouble. Yeah, and we've seen that time and time again. Lizzie was described as being naturally ugly. Oh. Yeah. She had pale Irish skin a short, stocky build with muscular arms. So basically, Lizzie and I have the same body types. <laughs> what can I say? Us Irish gals were built for plowing fields. Yes. Short, stocky, sturdy. Made for homesteading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's me. That's my family, right? Yeah. We, we got some homesteading bodies. And so Lizzie fell into that category, but was considered just not a very attractive female. She never really had a job. The few she did have did not end well, as she was said to have thrown a knife at a fellow co-worker. She was in and out of courtrooms filing claims against former employers. Damn. Just always kind of in the middle of some drama. Sounds like a joy to be around, though. <laughs> <laughs> She's fun at parties. Yeah, and she'll stab you in the neck. Yes. <laughs> Lizzie married a man named Charles Hopkins, known as Ketspool Brown in 1877 when she was around 13 years old which is quite young well in, in that time it's but that was acceptable yeah it was at that time hopkins was from pennsylvania she birthed a son from this marriage in 1879 charles met his demise when he was just died suddenly and it was initially believed that he maybe had typhoid fever oh that's a big one it was shortly after being a widower that she married an elderly man named Artemis Brewer, who was a veteran and a pensioner. He had been in the Civil War. He would die less than a year after their marriage. He was a victim of Lizzie's constant beatings, hair pulling. It was just known around friends, neighbors, that Lizzie was incredibly abusive to this elderly man. Now, it is not known if her first two husbands died of natural causes or 
it was something more sinister. Soon after losing her second husband, Lizzie married a third man named Hiram Parkinson. He fled the relationship, abandoning Lizzie within a year of marriage. Finding herself a single woman again, she married a fourth husband. Wow. George Smith. Smith had been a good friend of Artemis Brewer, Lizzie's second husband. Smith knew Brewer was abused at Lizzie's hands, but he married her anyway. Huh. Well, damn. That doesn't make sense, but yeah, she must have had some kind of sweet ways, right? She must have been cuddly or something. <laughs> you think so? Must have. In a few months after they were wed, Lizzie attempted to kill George Smith by giving him tea laced with arsenic. When her plot to murder him failed, she packed up everything that was portable and fled to Bellow Falls, Vermont. Oh, so if I can't kill you, I'm leaving you. Okay. In Vermont, she met and married a man named Charles Plaistel. The marriage only survived about two weeks before Lizzie just up and vanished. She would later show up in Philadelphia, where she found another Irish family. This family she met had lived in the same area as the McNallys in Ireland. So they sort of befriended Lizzie, took her in, because they were all from the same town okay. in Ireland. In Philadelphia, Lizzie opened up a business, a little shop. Fire destroyed the business, and Lizzie collected insurance money on the property. However, her crime did not go unpunished because, yes, she set the fire. Also destroyed some surrounding homes. She was arrested on the arson charge and also some insurance fraud charges and ended up getting a two-year prison stint at Eastern State Penitentiary. Lizzie did not know what happened to her son. Like, once she went to prison, her son was taken from her. and She never knew where he ended up being. Oh, wow. Ever again? Ever again. Wow. And I guess didn't really make much of an effort to find him like once she was released probably best for her son it sounds like i'd really want to take a road trip to philadelphia i've been there a couple of times but when i've gone i've managed to sightsee a little bit but there's a few places i'd like to check out i really want to go to this eastern state pen they do tours is that one of the first and uh what's his name al capone i believe was there for Uh a bit and yeah it's one of the really big old prisons Back then, was that under that whole, um, gosh, what is it, the um, Puritan reform, heavy-handed prison shit? Well, I don't know. I'm not a prison expert. Ah, okay. I mean, you can find out and let us know next time. Yeah, I'll complete my thought later and let let y'all know. Okay, after serving two years in prison, Lizzie got out, changed her name from McNally to Brown, she went to Newburgh, where she met an elderly Civil War veteran named Paul Halliday. Paul owned a farm in Sullivan County, New York, which is in the upstate part of New York. He had six kids from a previous marriage. One of his children was described as severely disabled. Paul was Irish, and Lizzie told him she had just arrived in this country from Ireland. The two hit it off. Lizzie started working for Halliday as a housekeeper, but soon after the pair married, around 1890. Neighbors would later state the marriage was anything but happy and that Paul Halliday only married Lizzie because he didn't want to have to pay her wages to be the housekeeper. That's pretty extreme. But again, did not have a happy married life. 
She burned down Paul's barn and mill at some point. She told Paul that his disabled son had died in the fire trying to help her escape. But the son's door was locked and Lizzie had the key and there's really no way that this guy could have died in a fire helping her escape. But Paul didn't look too much into this, I guess, because he stayed married to her. What the hell? Yeah. That's crazy. She would burn down several buildings on Paul's property. At some point, she tries to elope with a neighbor who was a horse thief. She stole Paul's horses and, like, took them into town to try to sell them with this other man. The other man eventually left her. She gets arrested. She pleads insanity and is placed in an asylum. What the hell? After a year, she was released from the hospital. Doctor stated that she was cured. She went back to her husband, Paul Halliday. Another year passed, and then suddenly Paul was nowhere to be found. Lizzie told his kids and neighbors he was traveling and would return soon, but they were suspicious. Now, this is where the story gets kind of odd, okay? Well, it's been pretty damn odd up to this point. Yeah. The McQuillan family was another family in town that lived kind of near the holidays. At some point, a woman named Mrs. Smith, as she stated, showed up at the McQuinlan's home saying she needed a housekeeper and needed some help. Mrs. Margaret McQuillan had gone with Mrs. Smith over to the Halliday home. Mrs. Smith later showed up at the McQuillan household again, telling the daughter Sarah that her mother had an accident and she needed to come help. Nobody knew this Mrs. Smith in town. Mr. McQuillan was very confused. His wife had gone off with this strange woman. Now his daughter's gone. Nobody knows who Mrs. Smith is when he's asking around about the Smith family. Lizzie was the last to see these women alive. And can you guess who Mrs. Smith really was? It's Lizzie. (gasps) Oh, shit. Yes. Halliday's sons was suspicious of Lizzie and the missing father, so he eventually got the police to come to the house with a search warrant. It is said Lizzie was cleaning fresh blood from the carpets when the police showed up. She goes after the head detective with a floorboard, hitting him with it. Just freaking out. What the hell? She just got a floorboard in her damn hand? Yeah. During the search, police find under this haystack the bodies of Sarah and Margaret McQuillan, who had been bound and shot. The husband, Tom McQuillan, confirmed that Lizzie was the Mrs. Smith who had come to his home and had been the last person with his wife and daughter. Lizzie denies knowing what happened to the women or how they got there. Lizzie is arrested for the murder of the McQuillan women. It does not take long for the body of Paul Halliday to be discovered under the floorboards of the house. Reminds me of the Frankie Silver story. Oh, totally. That we did a while back. The smell tipped off the Halliday son. I mean, if you bury somebody under floorboards, it's going to take not a lot of time for that to start stinking. That's crazy. I mean, the son kind of already knew that Paul Halliday had likely met an ill fate, but this was proof. When they find Paul Halliday's body under the floorboards, he had been tied up, had been shot like the women had. His body was described as also having been mutilated, but I couldn't find a lot of details about what exactly had been done to him. Dude, she's mean. When Lizzie was questioned, it is reported that she tore off her clothes and started speaking in gibberish. 
Some thought it was an act, but others truly believed that Lizzie Halliday was insane. While awaiting trial, Lizzie's escapades continued. She refused to eat while she was in jail, going on a hunger strike. She tried to strangle the sheriff's wife. How did she get access to the sheriff's wife? Probably back in the day, you know, they would have someone in a cell, and usually, like, the sheriff's wife was responsible for, like, bringing these people breakfast, lunch, dinner. Oh, I didn't realize that. Anyway. <laughs> Otis so, never got damn. So Andy's lo- wife never took Otis food in the jail cell. Okay, well. She sets her clothes on fire. She tried to hang herself. She also cut her throat and arms with broken glass. Her behavior was so dangerous and erratic, she had to be chained to the jail floor. My God. Her moments of insanity were often when she was being tied to a crime or being asked about her crimes. That's when she would just fly off the handle and start exhibiting this really bizarre behaviors. Other times, she was really quiet and calm. Ah, that says something. The county sheriff was a man named Harrison Beecher. He told the press he thought Lizzie was Jack the Ripper. Now, there was no evidence to support this claim, obviously. Her story made front-page headlines in New York City and across the country. The Jack the Ripper involvement made headlines down in Maryland and Ohio. The press tagged Lizzie as the worst woman in the world. Damn, that's a pretty big statement. That was her nickname in the news. You're the worst woman in the entire world. And again, of course, there was no evidence tying Lizzie to the Jack the Ripper killings in Whitechapel, but authorities figured they had not really gotten an accurate picture of Lizzie's crimes. They believed they had probably only uncovered a small percentage of her crimes and her victims, that she likely had killed more people. Well, yeah, she might not be Jack the Ripper, but she's pretty damn vicious. At her murder trial, she was found guilty and sentenced to death by the electric chair. She was the first woman in the U.S. to be sentenced to electric chair execution. Yeah, and I say that was fairly uh, new invention. After the verdict was read, Lizzie lunged for Sheriff Beecher and bit his hand. Jesus. Now, it is said his hand became infected and he would later have to have it amputated from this bite. Oh, my God. It's like a rabid animal. Her sentence was commuted and she was judged criminally insane. Lizzie was sent to the Matawan Hospital for the Criminally Insane in New York. Some believe she was not truly insane, but merely just put on a show to avoid the death penalty. During her time at the mental hospital, she was equally as horrible. She tried escaping multiple times and attacked the hospital workers. In 1897, Lizzie and another patient jumped an attendant. They beat the attendant, pulled out her hair, and scratched the woman. Both Lizzie and the other attacker were put in isolation. After this, her behavior kind of stabled out for a bit. But it was in 1906 that Lizzie Halliday attacked a nurse named Nellie Wicks. Now, Nellie Wicks was a 24-year-old who had recently been promoted to head of the women's unit. Lizzie attacks her with a pair of scissors, stabbing the woman over 200 times. Oh, my God. So here's the story. Wicks worked often one-on-one with Lizzie. Wicks was described as this very kind, loving, empathetic, nurse and she really was concerned about Lizzie and befriended her she would give her extra privileges 
And they say Lizzie seemed to truly love this woman. What the hell? And have a good relationship with her. But what what happened was Nurse Wicks was offered an opportunity to leave the hospital and go further her education. Ah. She was going to do this. It was a good opportunity. She was going to get free, you know, more medical schooling. Of course, she's, you know, young. She wants to advance. She's going to do this. When she tells Lizzie what her plans are, Lizzie begged her not to leave. And when Wicks told her she was going to go anyway, Lizzie made a lot of threats. On Mrs. Wicks' last day, Lizzie followed the nurse into a bathroom, used the woman's keys to lock the door, and then stabbed her with a pair of scissors she had been given by Nurse Wicks for sewing privileges. What an asshole. So if if I can't have you, you know, in my life, making me happy, I'm just going to kill you. Yes. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, but you know, with these, a lot of these murderers, we see that. We especially see that with a lot of the um, domestic violence related murders. Well, definitely. Where, you know, a husband will be like, oh, well, if I can't have you, no one will. Yeah, that... That's an unusual thing to see out of a woman. That's true. And and it's almost anyone in her life, if she can't... Control them. Control them or use them to her advantage, she'll just straight up kill them or maim them. But uh, I've never understood that mentality of, if I can't have you, no one will. I guess maybe that's just I'm not wired like that. But... Well, if I can't have you, Dylan, no one will. <laughs> oh, I'm being stabbed with scissors I gave her for sewing privileges. Was that intimidating? Oh, I've Probably been stabbed 200, 200 times? Yeah, with, with sewing? With little-ass so, scissors? Yeah. Oh, that's like a death by a thousand cuts. I know. That's fucking horrible. On June 18th, 1918, Lizzie Halliday died. She was buried in an unmarked grave on the grounds of the state mental hospital. No shit. They're ready to be done with her crazy ass. Now, over the years, of course, a lot of articles, stories have been written about Lizzie Halliday. And some feminist writers have speculated that Lizzie's crimes were considered to be much more heinous than other female killers at that time because she was not considered beautiful or pretty. Well, you know, um, there is actually some statistical evidence that people who are attractive, male and female, come out, have better um, better outcomes in court, even at the smallest level, like trafficking, stuff like that. Yeah. Isn't that funny? It is. But since she was considered ugly, I mean, at this time, there were plenty of other women who were murdering people. I mean, not long after this, you had Lizzie Borden, which we talked about on our last Tipsy February episode. Yeah, and it kind of went different for her, didn't it? It did. I mean, she was found not guilty, acquitted of the murders. But let's be honest, Lizzie was pretty damn out of control. But to be called the worst woman in the world? Yeah. I mean, we had Belle Gunnis. There were a lot of other women who were doing equally as terrible things. That's true. But for some reason, they ran with the Lizzie Halliday story. She was naturally ugly. Naturally ugly. Isn't that a strange way to describe someone? Well, I've seen some naturally ugly people. Can I feel bad for them. I'm just like, can I pluck your eyebrows and contour your face? Please let me. Can Is there pictures of her? Um, There's like some draw some drawings. Basically like drawings. Draw, yeah. There aren't really a whole lot of pictures. So like I mean, I guess at this drawing. time, she was not wealthy and, you know, so it was hard to right. 
maintain and get a photo, not like today where everybody has an iPhone. The sources I used for the story is a book called The Lady Killers and, of course, various newspapers and magazines, mostly out of New York State. Wow. Yeah. It's a crazy story. Well, I think it's an interesting story. I love the old cases. 1800s, those are cases, unless it's a big story, like perhaps Lizzie Borden, you don't hear a lot about those murders that took place 150, 200 years ago. But I think they're so fascinating because I think it just goes to show that even though in modern times we act like we're just living in this horrible world of murder and mayhem, but the truth is this has been going on since the dawn of time. We just are now hearing about it because we have the 24-hour news cycle. Well, there's that. And uh, a lot of these uh, people back in these this time did, got away with a lot more. They did. Killed a lot more people. They would just up and move to another area. Things weren't connected. And I think that in a lot of ways, um, they were more vicious and were able to do more you know, harm to society because of things not being connected and moving at such a slow pace. Well, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And then, of course, Lizzie was married, like, what, seven, eight times? I mean, she just kept getting married. That's crazy. Which is funny, because I'm like, I have so many single friends, men and women, who complain about not being able to even get a, like, second date. Yeah. And I'm like, but here Lizzie Halliday is, a maniac. A maniac who's not pretty. She can learn, like, eight husbands. I'm telling you, she had some skills that are not described in this story. You think so? She must have, <laughs> right? Soft hand, something. She could make a really delicious baked potato. Well, yeah, let's just, yeah, let's call it that. The uh, Urban Dictionary baked potato. Oh, oh, okay. I don't know what that is. Don't look that up. Well, Dylan, I hope that you're feeling better. Oh, I will be after I get done with this damn night of work. Thanks for sitting down and and taking the time to. Record a brand new Mountain Murders episode for all of our listeners. Yes, and I want to apologize to listeners. I'm a little flat. And I don't think through editing you can make me better. Well, it's okay. I'm sorry. We will, we love you and we'll forgive you this time. I, I love you and I love them. Okay. Each and every one of them, <laughs> men and women. And um, we're really glad that they keep tuning in. It's true. Thanks so much. And, of course, if you haven't quite caught up, we did released three episodes last week. We had our Eric Rudolph mountain terrorist episode. We had two unsolved cases out of West Virginia, the murders of Teresa Woods and Kathy Carroll. Those were interesting. Which was originally a Patreon episode, but we released that for our listeners. And then we had our Tipsy February, which was also a Patreon episode. And we talked about the first documented murder, Lizzie Borden and the Black Dahlia, straight a little bit from our usual content. But I also want you guys to see a bit of what we do on Patreon and what's yeah. available. So if you decide to sign up, you know you're getting some interesting content there. Yes, talking about the caveman killing people, y'all. It's true. Okay. Well, we'll be back with more mountain murders and true crime soon enough.